If you have a coffee house Bible, we're going to be on page 831. That's Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're in a series called Teach Us to Pray, and we're going straight to the source. If you want to know how to pray, you go to the master teacher. And if you want to go to the master teacher, this is the master class. And so it's the Lord's Prayer right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And we only have one more week in this prayer. Next week is the, the finale. I, I have loved the encouragement. Some of you have shared just ways that you've stepped deeper into prayer. I've gotten to hear many kids recite the Lord's Prayer. Um, my hope is that our efforts with prayer and fasting earlier in this year, it's not that you didn't just step back and settle into the way things used to be, but that you step forward and deeper into a life of prayer. And we're going to keep trying to pursue prayer this year. Um, um, I'm convicted that the Lord wants this to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so a big part of that means cultivating our own prayer lives. Lord's Prayer is a perfect way to do it. This is part five, forgive us our debts. Forgive us, part five. Can I share a story from last week? Thank you. Uh, this summer, Annie made a playlist. Annie's our 10-year-old daughter, and it has all the hits that our kids love. It's got the Chicken Nuggets song. It's got DK rap. It's got like lots of kids' theme songs. Uh, it's got High Hopes by T Panic at the Disco. Our family calls this our church planting song. Uh, never had a dime, but always had a vision. That's our church planting song. But the, the favorite for our girls right now is this song called A Million Dreams. And it's an, a song from a 2017 film called uh, The Greatest Showman. Or in our house, it's called The Greatest Showman. As opposed to like the greatest show woman. I don't, the greatest show man. And they've never seen the show though. So there's, they start listening to the song and they've heard it at karaoke at other places. And then they start adding in other songs from the soundtrack. And finally they just start asking, when can we watch this movie? We want to watch the greatest show man. <laughs> when are we going to watch this movie? And I said, well, after you learn all these songs, then maybe, no. So we set up this pizza movie night on Wednesday of this week. You know, we order the pizza, we, we have all the kids there, they're so excited. They haven't been this excited for a pizza movie night in a long time. And we start the movie, and it's just like, starts out with their favorite, you know, the bangers for the kids right now. It starts out with Fletcher's favorite song, goes straight into Annie's favorite song. They're loving it. It's the story of pizza, spoiler alert, by the way, this is a six-year-old movie. I'm about to ruin the whole thing, though. It tells the story of P.T. Barnum who develops the, the circus, but really it's like his rags to riches story where he comes from poverty and then he starts pursuing applause in his dreams. He's got a million dreams after all, so he, he starts pursuing it all. And everything seems to be paying off. After the troubling childhood, then he gets everything he wanted. He gets the girl of his dreams, despite her parents. He gets the children and and their love and affection. And he gets to be the father that his, he never got to experience. He, he gets the applause. He gets the riches. Everything is working out an hour into the movie. So our kids had a lot of questions about some of the characters, particularly the bearded lady. Mostly it was like, why doesn't she shave it? And I was like, I don't, I don't really know. There's a lot here I don't really know about. This is theology from the greatest showman. Sorry. So, there's this turning point, though, in the movie where it's not enough. And 
he starts looking for applause in other places. So he goes to Lady Lind, this beautiful singer, and he realizes that he doesn't have to put on a circus to get applause, that he can get applause for, for substance, not the circus. And then she stands in front of the crowd with him kind of behind the scenes, taking in all the glory, and she says, it's never enough. There's this beautiful song that she sings, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Natalie, are you singing back there? Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. This becomes emblematic of everything that's wrong with P.T. Barnum. Barnum, he leverages all his wealth to go on. I told you, spoiler alert, right? He leverages all his wealth to go on tour with Lind, and he actually leaves behind these friends. He has better things to do and better people to be with, people with money, people with fame, and he's after them. He leaves his daughters behind. It shows this ballet recital with his little girls dancing, and then there's the empty seat. So in our family movie night, it's a... You know, they love the songs, and then we get to this moment where there's a dad with an empty seat at his daughter's ballet recital, and Evie is, she's a little upset about what's happening. She's got tears in her eyes, like, where is the daddy? He doesn't only leave his daughters, he leaves his wife behind, and he has this growing intimacy with another woman, and it's at this point that Annie starts to get anxious. She's just like, please don't do the thing that it seems like you're about to do. And then his tour collapses in scandal. And if you remember, he returns home and there's a great fire at a circus. Has anybody seen this movie or is this just like a Hopkins family thing? Okay, some of you have. You don't even need to anymore. <laughs> the tour collapses. Literally, it's burning to the ground. And it's at this moment in the movie, on family movie night, this great night that we've been looking forward to, that Fletcher loses it, just bawling. This is the worst movie I've ever seen. He's like every, I mean, just screams and tears. He's falling out totally. An hour in, it's all in flames. And to him... It feels like there's no coming back. So what do we do when it feels like there's no coming back? Have you ever been in a situation where it felt like, it felt like maybe you stepped away from a priority or you shouldn't have been in a place that you actually were or you, you left behind a friend or there was this betrayal. Maybe even you didn't do the big thing, but you did a smaller thing. Or maybe you did the thing again. When it all feels like it's burning down, like it's been exposed. Here, here's another way of asking it. What do we do when the bill comes due? What do we do when the bill comes, when it, when it finally shows up? when it's out there.
we pause the movie, and we just start talking for like 15, 20 minutes. And we start sharing, here's how we got here. And here's where it's going. But the only way forward, you know, Fletch and Annie and Evie, you know that the only way forward is forgiveness. And it feels impossible. It seems like there's no hope for that. And how could you ever get from here to there? I think it's the same in our situations, that the winds of forgiveness are actually really strong against us for a lot of reasons right now. Some of these are cultural. Right now, forgiveness is not like a, a cultural virtue. It's, it's actually the opposite. Many people and voices in culture are really worried about forgiveness. There's a fear that forgiveness uh, overlooks um, wrongdoing, and it leads to injustice. And maybe most importantly, it overlooks victims. So culturally, we, we're not moving towards forgiveness. We're, we're moving very much away from it. But then personally, we also have these headwinds against us. I was reflecting, I, I'm confident that there's somebody in this room who has never uttered the words, I forgive you. Or has never heard the words, will you forgive me? I, I grew up in a Christian home. You know, there's lots of love. But forgiveness wasn't in our vocabulary. It wasn't in our lexicon in terms of, I'm sorry, yes, totally. But I'm sorry and forgive me are different things. It's no big deal and I forgive you are very different things. We live not only in an age where we don't have this language of forgiveness, but many of us are kind of losing the ability to look another in the eye and to work something out. Maybe you've never even been shown that. We live in a digital space where it's very easy to just write people off and to move on. But somehow in a church, somehow in, in a home, in a family, we're going to have to repair some things. The only way forward when it's all burning down, when the bill comes due, is forgiveness. And forgiveness is hard. So as we pause and reflect on forgiveness, uh, let me just start with a prayer. And I'm going to ask God to illuminate uh, something in your heart that maybe you're needing his forgiveness from. Or maybe in your heart that you're needing to forgive another for. And then we'll dive into what Jesus says about forgiveness in this prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, would you reveal any sin? Lord, would you reveal any sin that we, we need to experience your forgiveness for? That we're holding on to? That we can't let go of? That it feels like it's stuck and so you're not going to overlook it again? It feels like it's so big, so you can't possibly overlook it. Lord, would you illuminate something where we need to experience your grace and mercy? And Lord, would you reveal any sin, any sin against us for which we need to share forgiveness? A sin that is a root of bitterness. A sin that's harboring resentments. A sin perhaps significant, perhaps small, but it's 
it's just planted in a seed in our hearts. Lord, would you reveal that thing to us? And Lord, we trust that you are gentle. And so as I speak and as we hear today, I'm praying that we could hear your gentle voice of love and that you could help us uproot the bitterness and the resentment, the guilt, the condemnation, and that you could wash us anew in your gracious love. In the blood, in the victory, in the advocacy of Jesus, we pray. Amen. When Jesus talks about prayer, he says one of the things you need to do daily is to ask God to forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The early Christians prayed this three times a day, morning, noon, and night. They're going to God saying, will you forgive us and will you help us forgive other people? And I think this repetition is probably something that we need to recapture. So we'll get into at the end of the sermon, Reed's going to help me with some practices on how to to really share forgiveness, how to practice forgiveness. And we're also going to be looking kind of at what the nature of forgiveness is. So let's just kind of break down some of what Jesus says about forgiveness. In this prayer, he says, forgive us our debts. This word forgive is a major biblical theme, right? It may be the major biblical theme of how is God going to atone for the sins of his creatures. Forgiveness. The, the word in Greek is a word that just means to remit. Now, if you don't know what remit is, that's what happens when the bill comes due. It's literally to pay it off. It's very much tied to debts and to what you're owed. And so the remission of something is where you pay off something. It's where you, you take it on. You remit payment. It's an exchange of something. This word is also just used metaphorically, not just for the payment of something, but for the release of something. When you set something free, it, you liberate. This is the same word. So forgive and liberate and pay off are all the same word here that he's using when it comes to forgive. But forgive, he says, is about our, our debts. Forgive us our debts. Jesus uses a lot of words, even if you just look at this, this prayer, in verse 12, he uses this language of debt or trespass. In verse 14, he uses a different word for debt. In Luke 11, Luke's version, he uses the word sin. All of these words seem to be interchangeable, debt, trespass, sin. And they're ways actually of kind of helping us see the full picture of what this is. Debt is a really good metaphor for helping us grasp the nature of what he's asking us to forgive. Because a debt is something you owe. One scholar, he translates this, your failures, but a debt is something you owe. So financially, this, this makes sense in this metaphor. Um, when somebody seriously wrongs you, there is an unavoidable sense that the wrongdoer owes you, one scholar says. The wrong has incurred an obligation, a liability, a debt, and anyone who is wronged feels a compulsion to make the other person pay down that debt. To forgive is to cancel the debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. Someone always pays every debt. Do you, do you see what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is where you take what was owed and you just carry it. It's where you, you pay it off, where you absorb it, where you cancel it. 
But the nature of forgiveness means it's, it's not just overlooked, right? So if someone breaks your lamp when they come over to your house, group leaders, you're like, what? This has probably happened to you already. It's where they spill something on your rug, where they, where they break the lamp. What is forgiveness? Well, you can get square in a lot of different ways. One, you can just say, that'll be $50 to replace this lamp. We're good now. A, A for B. But to forgive is to say, no, I'll cover the cost of replacement, of repair. So I have to go spend the $50 for the lamp, or I have to carry the cost of having no more light. Do you see? Forgiveness is saying, I will take it on myself. So a debt is something you owe. Forgive is to pay the something that was owed. In the financial terms, this makes sense. But Jonathan Pennington, in his scholarship, he says, it's used metaphorically in the ancient Near East in like Palestine, in Jesus' world. It's not just a financial metaphor. He says, this is in an honor and shame culture. It's used for things owed to another because of dishonoring or sinning against them. So it's not just when somebody owes you 50 bucks for the lamp. It's also when somebody owes you because they've dishonored you. They owe you because of a loss to your reputation. So you can make it square by punishing them and by having them speak truth and advocate for you publicly. Or you can just take the hit to your reputation. That's what it looks like carrying the hit yourself. Does that make sense? The, The nature of debt and forgiveness, these go together. In monetary ways, yes, but also in non-monetary ways. Miroslav Volf, he's a, a Croatian. He, he saw the, the genocide of his people. And he's a, a Christian theologian, grew up in Croatia. Now he's a, a Yale professor. And he describes forgiveness like this. He says, it's where you unstick the deed from the doer. Where you unstick the deed from the doer. And, but more literally, in Jesus' idea, it's where you not only unstick it, but where you stick it on you where you're covering it instead. So that means that forgiveness is always costly. It may not always cost you, but it always costs someone to cover the cost. The the broken lamp isn't going away. You either have to deal with the light or replace it. There's a cost either way. So forgiveness is to cancel the debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. But forgiveness is not overlooking wrongs. Forgiveness is not overlooking wrongs. It is naming and absorbing their cost. There's this excuse uh, mentality. There's this minimizing mentality that can easily show up whenever you're talking about repair. So you can say, I'm sorry, and they can say, ah, it's no big deal. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness says, I know exactly how big of a deal it was, and it's not on you. You see, it, it doesn't excuse it. It doesn't minimize it. It doesn't overlook it exactly. Forgiveness pays it. So it names it and it it absorbs it in some way. It doesn't keep it on their record. But the record is still needing to be carried by someone. So it it is paying the cost. It is not overlooking wrongs. And so many critique the idea of forgiveness today because they're worried about injustice that it might lead to. But actually, I think that Christianity gives us the best means of leading to true justice rather than vengeance. And instead of just punishing and lifting up people to a spectacle, Christianity allows us to do forgiveness that leads to good justice. Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy, he says, when we forgive something of a wrong that they've done against us, we decide that we will not make them suffer for it in any way. 
But this does not mean that we must prevent suffering that comes to them as a result of the wrong they have done. The natural consequences of actions have been pretty well designed by God to lead us to be the persons we ought to be. To blunt their lessons may be to harm those we would help. Forgiveness isn't opposed to justice. I think forgiveness is the necessary means to justice rather than vengeance. So, Christian practice actually acknowledges sin and it agrees with God that this is wrong. But there's another view out there when it comes to forgiveness, and it sounds a lot like self-forgiveness. The, the idea of self-forgiveness very much is about overlooking some things. But it seems to me that the problem of self-forgiveness is that you can't pay off loans on a credit card for long. So if forgiveness is about carrying the cost, to forgive yourself is to just say, well, I'm going to pull it from my checking and pay my savings. It's like, That's, that doesn't actually help you at all. And so most of us who are trying to forgive ourselves still have this inner voice of a conscience that's saying you still owe something. Because if forgiveness of self is the goal, then who's going to carry the cost? It's got to be you. There's a, a book called Radical Self-Forgiveness. And it's not a Christian book. He's trying to tap into Eastern spirituality. And he says this, While I remain accountable for what I do in the human world, in purely spiritual terms, nothing wrong ever happens. You see, the problem with self-forgiveness is that it has to minimize if you're going to be able to carry it. But of course, we know that some things are wrong. There are some things that are evil. Those need to be carried. And so he says, while I remain accountable, well, if you're still accountable, then who's going to take it off of you? If he's right, then we're actually still on the hook. What we need is forgiveness, not from inside ourselves. We need forgiveness from outside ourselves. The reason we can't forgive ourselves is because we think forgiveness is earned. Let me, let me, let me go here. Jesus, uh-oh, can you hear me? Okay, Jesus has three dimensions when he teaches on forgiveness. There's, there's three, it's actually a very full picture of what forgiveness is. The first dimension that we see all over scripture is the vertical dimension between you and God. And the vertical dimension basically says that we are graciously forgiven by God in Christ. Now, the Old Testament's all full of the vertical dimension of forgiveness. But Jesus comes and he actually showed, the gospels show that this is how all the sacrifices of the Old Testament came to not just be paid on credit, now they're finally paid on debit. Someone is coming to cover the cost. And the cost that Jesus covers means that you can experience forgiveness from outside yourself. It's, it's, not, a minim <clears throat> it's not a minimization of our sins. It's that someone has paid the full payment for our sins so that you don't have to anymore. You don't have to put it on a lamb. You don't have to put it on yourself. You can put it on the lamb of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, There's this vertical dimension, but there's also a horizontal dimension. Now, the Old Testament doesn't deal a lot with the horizontal dimension. But in the New Testament, consistently, we're called to reconcile if the person repents. For example, here's Luke chapter 17. He says, watch yourselves. Watch out. If your brother or sister sins, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, 
forgive him. He says, you've got you to make it right. So there's a horizontal dimension. But in the prayer, we don't exactly see the horizontal dimension as much as we see number three, the third dimension, the internal dimension. It's not just that we're called to go and reconcile. We're actually called to forgive in our hearts. Here's, here's uh, Mark chapter 11. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, anything against anyone, forgive him. But what if he doesn't repent? He says, well, that actually belongs to the horizontal reconciliation process. This isn't actually dependent on their repentance in the teachings of Jesus. He's teaching both things, and they are not opposed to each other. He says, you are called to forgive. You're called to love your enemies. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. That's the end of the, the parable of the unforgiving servant. So there's this vertical dimension that we have to cover, and I think the vertical dimension is going to become the power for the rest of it. So Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The vertical dimension, we'll come back to that, leads into this internal dimension. By internal dimension, I mean it's a choice in your heart internally. Even if it's not communicated to somebody else, even if it doesn't lead to reconciliation with someone else, there's a choice made in the heart to do what Jesus says here, to forgive the debts, the owes, the, the trespasses that have been done against us. So Jesus, he takes this prayer and he actually sharpens this point. As soon as he finishes the prayer, look at what he says in verse 14. This is the next sentence after the prayer. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Do you see the, the point? He's sharpening. He could soften it. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. But no, instead he sharpens the point. So what is, what is the point? The point is that there's this internal dimension. There's this horizontal dimension in addition to the vertical dimension. This is a, a dominant theme in the Gospel of Matthew. If you just look one page earlier, Matthew chapter 5. Look at what he says about how we talk about one another. He says, if any of you call somebody raka or you fool, he says, you're in danger of the hell of fire. How, how you hold people in contempt, he says, the horizontal affects the vertical. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. A little later, he says, you've heard it said to love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for the one who persecutes you. Next chapter, Matthew chapter 7, he says, don't judge or you'll be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. The measure you use, it will be measured to you. The parable of the unforgiving steward in Matthew 18, he owns a trillion dollars and he says, I forgive you. And then he goes to the man who own, owes him a few hundred dollars and he says, pay me all that you owe. He says, our, our forgiveness horizontally affects our forgiveness vertically. Because you refuse to forgive the man a little, I'm actually, it's now back on your account. You're back in debtor's prison. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart, Jesus says. One more, Matthew 22 this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love God, love your neighbor. You see, there's a vertical and a horizontal. 
But here, it, it's all happening inside us. He says, when it comes to forgiveness, we want them to pay the debt. We want them to suffer. We want them to be punished. Sometimes we're satisfied when they're embarrassed. Sometimes we're satisfied when they, whenever they get punished. But we want them to suffer in some way corresponding to what we need. But instead, forgiveness is, in the language of Paul, to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Now, Jesus' point here seems, on the surface, like it's almost conditional, right? That our forgiveness from God is dependent on our forgiveness of others. And it's not that it's conditional as much as it is reciprocal. Here's one scholar. He says, despite the first impression, Jesus is not saying that God's forgiveness is based on or earned by our forgiveness of others. He says, not only do the Greek words for forgiveness not convey this, but the master parable of the unforgiving servant makes it clear that it is God's forgiveness of us that provides the basis, the motivation, and the power for our forgiveness of others. Because we experience his grace, we're able to share it with others. So this is, this is the call. What do we do with this? Uh, read just a second. I, do you have your mic? Okay. He says, forgive. Remember, forgive is where you cover the cost. Your debt, the debt is the thing that you owe. But look who he's talking to. He says, forgive us. Uh-oh. Forgive us our debts. And what he's saying is that this is an us problem, that we need this. And so what Reed and I are going to do is, is share really those two dimensions that Jesus focuses on here about receiving forgiveness and then about granting forgiveness. I'm going to cover receiving forgiveness and then if you could grab a bulletin because you'll need it for an exercise, Reed's going to cover granting forgiveness. Receiving forgiveness. I want to share a myth of confession. I think a lot of us believe that as we mature in Christ, we'll confess less and less. That we'll almost, as we grow up in Christ, as we're sanctified by the Spirit, we just won't need to confess as much anymore. Why, right? We'll have less sin, of course. <laughs> As we grow, we'll sin less. But actually, that's not how confession, that's not how confession works. In fact, it, it may be a really good spiritual test for you. Um, that if the idea of confession makes you want to stay away from God or stay away from the church, then it shows you don't actually understand what Jesus did for you. Because you're still believing that you're needing to earn your forgiveness rather than it being a gracious gift from God. If you grasp the gospel of what Jesus did for you, your inner di dialogue would sound more like this. Lord, I knew before that you died for me and that you accepted me, but I didn't know how foolish and sinful I, I was. So I now realize that your love is even greater than I thought. Your mercy is more free and undeserved than I thought. Because if you understand the cross, then you understand that the discovery of sin in your heart, new depths of weakness and fault and evil in your life, it drives you closer to him, not further away. So instead of the myth of confession, that, that confession, it keeps you from God, it's actually confession, the thing that drives you to God. I, I love Nisha's reading from Psalm 32. He says, our, our bones are wasting away whenever we hold in our sin, but then we give it to God, and God starts singing songs over us, and his love is surrounding us. It's this deep joy of confession, because confession means no more hiding. To confess is not to wallow in shame. It's actually good news. It's, it's taking the medicine. It's not the embarrassing part of it. 
Now, there's a lot of sins to confess, but I think the deeper that we can go, the deeper the joy that we can experience. The deeper we can go in confession, the deeper we go with the, with the Lord himself. Um, Robert Mulholland, in his book, An Invitation to a Journey, he says the ancient Christians saw four categories of sin, kind of starting at surface level. He called those blatant sins. Blatant sins are really obvious. Most people in the world would even agree with Christians like, yeah, those things are bad. Don't do those things. It's like if you're looking at a tree, that's the fruit that everybody kind of agrees on. Underneath blatant sins, he calls deliberate sins. He says some of the behaviors that we deal with in deliberate sins, they may not even be bad, but they're just bad for us right now. He says in, in Scripture, it's, it's things like eating meat offered to idols. It's actually okay for some people to do, but it, it would be not good at all for others to do. So it's a layer underneath where you start to examine your motivations. Instead of just the fruit, it's your intentions, your motivations. That, it's, it's not just blatant, it's deliberate. Underneath deliberate is what he calls unconscious. So the deliberate is like you can sort of see them, but you're getting into intent. Underneath that is what he calls unconscious. And at this stage, this stage he says, God begins the process of showing to us the deep festering sores of our being in order that we might offer them up to God through the disciplines. But the final step is what he calls inner orientations. Uh, what some call the idols of the heart. This is the thing that drives you. Tyler Staten, in his book, he calls them these particular fig leaves that we've picked out to cover up with. Does that metaphor make sense? Fig leaves to cover up our nakedness. This is one of our dinnertime conversations as we're debriefing on P.T. Barnum and what happened in that movie that was so devastating to our family. And it's pretty easy to see in the film what P.T. Barnum's kind of inner, that, that last layer, the, the fig leaves that he puts on. It's applause. There's this scene where he's coming back to his wife and he's trying to apologize. And he says, I, I didn't do anything with her. I don't love her. And she says, but you don't love me either. All you love is applause. So he points at the blatant sin and says, I didn't do that thing. But she puts at the, points at the heart and says, but you're, you're in the slave to that thing. There are these ways that we try to cover up, and confession is where we uncover. There's a shame that comes with nakedness in the face of sin. But what I think Jesus wants to do is actually to take our, our nakedness and our shame, and he wants to come close and then to clothe us. We're all wearing these fig leaves of our own making. This is a quote from Keller's book on forgive. Keller's book on forgiveness called Forgive. He says, why all these things? These are fig leaves. Your perfectionism, he's looking right at me, is a fig leaf. Your work is a fig leaf. Your holding on to your youth is a fig leaf. Your desperate need for approval is a fig leaf. We know there's something foul and we're looking for perfume. These are desperate efforts to deal with the sense of unacceptability, of unlovability that we all have. But fig leaves don't work. He says they're always falling apart. Some of you may have kids as your fig leaf. I have to have successful or faithful children. You may have uh, this aspiration of, like if 
I don't think anyone here is like aspiring to be a professional athlete anymore. But if you are, that may be your fig leaf. The teen may have to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. The young man has to be successful at work or has to make the best grades. Some are rescuers, some are defenders, some are abusers, some are productive, some are worriers. Some try to control, some try to keep the peace, some try to master it all and figure it out. Everybody has a fig leaf. But Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us. You know the story of fig leaves in scripture, right? <laughs> they, they feel nakedness and shame. And so they make for themselves fig leaves to cover up what they've done. And what the Lord does in that moment is he takes away the fig leaf. He knows they're naked. And instead it says that he, this is the first death in scripture. I've, I've shared this before. When you eat of the tree, you have to die. But instead of Adam and Eve dying, an animal died. And he made for them um, clothes of skins. And this is all foreshadowing what's going to happen in the temple every day for a thousand years. Where instead of you carrying the, the debt, we're going to put the debt on something else. We're going to put it on credit. And we're going to roll the credit. We're going to kill the animal over and over and over because sin, the wages of sin is death, and these things keep rolling forward until the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's so amazing that, that God, your creator, it says that he loved you so much that he emptied himself. You can picture God in the heavens and all the royal robes that you can imagine him wearing. And he emptied himself. And he took the humble position of a slave. This is exactly what we see at the Last Supper at the table. Jesus takes off his garment. And he, with it, washes his disciples clean. Foreshadowing this, this death that's coming the next day. When his robe is stripped off. And he's made a mockery of and he's clothed. And then they take that off and they, they cast lots for his garments and there he is naked and ashamed on the cross. And so the, the full debt that was due for the nakedness of sin, for the shame of sin, for the guilt, for all the death of animals, it's all been rolled forward and it's all been put on him. And the logic of scripture says that only in him is there actually forgiveness from outside of us. And that forgiveness that's outside of us isn't because God is eager to punish. It's not because God wants to somehow divine child abuse against his son. No, it's God in himself reconciling us back to him in love. This is the love of God made manifest in Jesus Christ, his love for you. Have you ever heard the Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? And can it be that I should that I should gain an interest in his blood? How can this happen? Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Amazing love. You see, he, the father looks upon us as a father dearly beloved children. And so when you come to your father and you say, forgive us, he points at his son and he says, I already did. There is 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what do we do about that inner voice? He says, First uh, John chapter 3, verse 20. He says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Only a forgiveness that comes from the outside can actually atone for the thing on the inside. But then when we experience that forgiveness of God from the outside, it empowers. It empowers us to forgive on the inside and move us horizontally to the people around us. The experience of grace is the only basis for the sharing of grace. The experience of being forgiven is the only way to go on and forgive. Miroslav Volf, again, the Croatian theologian, he says, forgiveness flounders when we exclude our enemy from the community of humans. Forgiveness flounders when we exclude our enemy from the community of humans, even as we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. So the, the power to forgive comes from both the wealth and the poverty of spirit. The poverty of spirit that says, and can it be? Me? That, that says, I have to lower myself down to get through the door of humility. And inside the door, there's just abundance of love and grace. It's, it's poverty of spirit, but it's also wealth of spirit. It's coming from a place of security, knowing that your confession actually doesn't distance you from God. It actually brings you closer because your identity isn't manufactured and then asserted. It's not the declaration of, of a movie like The Greatest Showman that just says, this is me, as if that's enough. Instead, it's saying, this is you. My beloved daughter, my beloved son, and I'm proud of you. You see, there's a wealth of spirit in coming from an identity and an atoning sacrifice that comes from outside of you. But it seems to me, as important as that is, it's the next step that we're totally unfamiliar with. Receiving forgiveness, crucial. It is the power for all of it. But granting forgiveness, that's hard. Reed's going to help us with a process and a practice to help us step into this. It's on the back of your bulletin. Would you grab that and um, a pen or a pencil if, you, if you've got it? Come on up, Reed. This is from the, we call it the forgiveness cycle in, in our, our freedom prayer. Um, I, how about you just take it away and then close us in prayer? Okay, yeah. Like Smith mentioned, this is uh, from Freedom Prayer. So if you've not experienced Freedom Prayer, kind of our first thing is we would really recommend uh, signing up for a session. Um, it's on the bulletin. So there's a little QR code. You can sign up, um, and we'll reach out to you about finding a time and a team. Uh, this part of prayer was something I think growing up with was just not in our vocabulary. Like Smith talked about, we can receive forgiveness, right? We pray for that. We, you know, we confess. But in a moment of prayer to Really, I think this is still contending prayer, right? We talked about the first half of the Lord's Prayer is contemplative. We're, we're floating on the river in the canoe. Uh, but this last half with petitions, forgiveness, and uh, what we'll talk about next week, for protection, it's all contending because we are contending for God to say, God, in my heart, 
take away the hardness. I'm contending that you move it in me to forgive someone where I'm not able to forgive them. Um, so what I want us to do is just, you can go ahead and put these up, Smith, if you have the clicker. Uh, we're just going to walk through these steps. And again, these are in kind of the freedom prayer experience, but I want to talk through them and then I'll kind of guide us in a prayer time to walk through these. But step one is to simply identify the debts. Um, and really, this is just to ask the question, Lord, what did this person owe me? In, in this moment of wounding or pain um, or being entangled, what did they owe me? Was it protection? Was it comfort? Was it compassion? Uh, what, what did they owe me in this? Let me go to the next step. And we're going to give time in our prayer to let the Father speak to us what, what those things were. And the second step is to pass the debts to Jesus. Lord, I, I hand these debts to you. Um, I give these to you. Where I'm unable to forgive, you can take and handle those debts. And then the second part is to experience the cancellation of those debts. Lord, these debts are canceled. And in, in our prayer time, we're going to read it like this. Today, I choose to forgive blank of everything I've just listed. These debts are canceled. Um, and this is so important because so often in prayer, we, we may say we forgive something, but we've not yet experienced Jesus taking those away from those. So it's to experience them being wiped clean from us. Let's go to the next, next step. And then we release judgment. Lord, I repent for judging because in our lack of forgiveness, we sometimes judge because that burden of that wound or pain um, ha has hardened our hearts even further and it's, it's gone outward because it has not yet been given to Jesus. And then last, bless. Because we not only want to forgive, but we want to bless. We, we desire good for that person that we are releasing. Bless. So this would sound like, Lord, would you bless blank and draw them to you? And then even, Lord, how, how can I come alongside you in blessing that person? So I want us to enter into a time of prayer. And this will just take a few moments. But I encourage you that this is contending prayer. That we are asking the Father to bring us freedom. To remove... Uh, the weight of wounding and lack of forgiveness to, so Jesus would lead us into forgiveness and freedom. So let, let's pray and we'll begin. Holy Father, we seek deeper intimacy with you. We, we desire to, to experience the loving embrace of your arms. And Father, we know that we live in a sinful and painful world where people wound us and they hurt us. But we do not want that wounding to lead to lack of forgiveness or unforgiveness. So Father, as we pray now, uh, we pray that here in this moment, you bring to mind one person who has hurt us, who has wounded us. Father, we pray that you bring this person to mind. Father, as we think about this person and this situation, Lord, we pray that you help us identify the debts. Lord, what did this person owe me? So as we spend a few moments now, we ask that you write this down uh, on your bulletin, that you, you speak it out loud, speak it to the Lord. But we'll give you a few moments just to simply ask, Lord, what did this person owe me?
Lord, we know that this debt list is heavy, that we are owed a lot of things. And we admit right now that it was too heavy for us to carry. So Lord, we pray that you give us the strength to pass these to Jesus. Lord, we hand these debts to you. So now, just for a few moments, give these to Jesus, name them, hand them off, and release them uh, from you carrying them. And Lord, because we have given these to you, we declare that these debts are canceled. Today, I choose to forgive of every, everything that I have just listed. These debts are canceled because you have canceled all my debts. I will no longer try to collect them, collect what I'm owed from them. And Lord, we know that in our unforgiveness and, and carrying these debts that were not ours to carry, that we may have sought uh, pleasure and easier way, a way to lighten the load. So we may have judged. We may have wrongly uh, judged someone uh, where it was only your place to judge. So Lord, we repent for judging. As if we knew all the reasons why they did what they did. I know we only see in part. Forgive us for taking your role. We give back to you. I trust your judgment. Lord, finally, we know that this person who may have wounded us, uh, whose debts have been canceled, is made in your image and your likeness, that they are beloved son and daughter of you. So, Father, right now, we pray that you guide us, Lord, that you would bless them and draw them to you. So for a few moments, we just want to simply fill in the blank. Lord, would you bless this person? And would you draw them to you? How may we join you in blessing them and drawing them to you.
Holy Lord, we thank you for the good, hard gift that is forgiveness. That you desire for us a life of freedom in you, where these debts and burdens do not weigh us down, but we give them to the one who can handle them, who wipe them clean. We, we confess that we know that we cannot. Father, we pray that you nurture our hearts to be forgiving hearts, that as we forgive others, we are reminded and known that you forgive us, and we take joy and comfort in that. We pray a blessing over the people that we have brought to mind, that we have forgiven, that we've counted the debts and given to you, because we know that you have canceled them. Father, we pray for reconciliation, that our horizontal relationships would be mended, just as now our vertical and internal have, that you have given us freedom, but we pray that you reconcile these people uh, together. Father, we give thanks that you are a good father, that you have given us a means of forgiveness and freedom in you. In Jesus Christ, we name, we pray. Amen. Uh, we encourage you that freedom prayer is a great place to experience big forgiveness, you know, big woundings, but this is also an amazing gift to do just every day, that at the end of every day, we are letting go of these debts, that we are handing them over to Jesus. So go get your kids, and thank you for being here this morning.